I'm John Atak, and everybody who's watching this knows that by now. And um, it's been such a long time, Mike. I've really missed you. What can I say? Yes, me, me too, John. And and first, let me congratulate you. Uh, some lucky woman has now made you their own, and I am thrilled mm. for you and your beautiful wife. So congratulations, first off. Thank you. I, I'd just like to point out, lucky one is me. <laughs> He's wonderful. What can I say? Terrific. Uh, it's terrific. I'm, I'm, I'm very, very happy for you. Grand. Thank you. So um, th there's a rumor that you've written a book. Yes. And the rumor may, may or may not be true. I, yeah. I, I cannot confirm nor deny it. Hmm. Best not to. Now, I have this here, which may be oh. that book. <laughs> well, um, I'm glad I didn't lie outright. Yes, it's true. <laughs> you would have been dead agented by Scientology. Exactly. That is. Um, so a billion years, my escape from a life in the highest ranks of Scientology. And I wanted to, to preface our conversation by saying, um, and as I often remark, uh, Voltaire said, people who believe absurdities will commit atrocities. And uh, I've there are so many books about Scientology, that there are more than 100 now, and it, every one of them really interesting. But I believe that, that yours is one of the most important because you worked closely with Ron Hubbard, you knew him, you were around him, and then you worked closely with the young man who took over from Ron Hubbard um, and became what I like to think of as the Fuhrer of Scientology. Um, they do have an international finance dictator, so why not just admit it, you know? Um, some people feel we shouldn't listen to you uh, because you haven't apologized fully enough for the harm you caused because, you know, for 20 years you were out there um, making life difficult for people like me. Yes. And, um, <laughs> What I'm going to say is that by standing up to the tsunami of harassment uh, that given to any critic of Scientology, you've made enough of an apology for me. I said that this the first time we we talked, but yes, you did. You you've you've been exceedingly gracious, John, and I do really appreciate now your friendship and your insight and all the 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 wit and intelligence that you bring to this conversation. So, you know, thank, thank you for that. Yeah, and it's important. You know, I, I, I've put those of us on the receiving end know exactly what you did when you spoke out. You put yourself in the line of fire and you did that to help other people uh, so that they could avoid the physical and psychological slavery that you suffered. Um, and the book makes it clear, and I think this is, for me, the most important thing about the book. You're a true believer. You did what you did out of a very high moral regard. You wanted to save humanity, and you, you thought that the world was imperiled, and so you sacrificed yourself to the cause. And, you know, understanding that, and for somebody reading the book, because we so often see people saying, Oh, I wouldn't be stupid enough to join a cult, you know. And yeah. those are the people I used to like to recruit, actually. <laughs> <They're> the <evil laughs> I'm completely invulnerable. 
Um, uh, we met only one time uh, as opponents uh, uh, when you were involved with running harassment against me. And uh, in our first interview, you, you told me that although I seem like a, a, a decent man or words to that effect, you'd have had no hesitation in destroying me because I was a threat to mankind's only hope of survival. And uh, I still am. <laughs> and yes, you are. Yeah. Um, I you left in um, 2007, finally, uh, having been involved from the age of six, mm -hmm. which I think was in about 1959. Yep. And so if people want to get their calculators out, they can work out how old you are. Well, it was actually five in 1959. Okay. I was born in 1955, but, you know, fantastic year the vintage of 1955 what can i say <laughs> i was born in the june of that year <laughs> um, well i'm older than you john yeah and and i respect my elders so what can i say <laughs> good good i i'm i appreciate that uh, so i if you feel comfortable with it I, i'd like you to read a few passages out from this and because i think people will get the sense of of the book more directly by us doing that than, than me prattling on so well i i am happy to do that john uh just and i i will comment that i recorded the audiobook and mm. it is available in the united states which and, and has actually sold many many more copies than the book book mm. um i provided and and the wonderful Humphrey Hunter at Silvertail Books, who publishes your book and Leah's and and Ramaskavich and, and you know every Scientology book, book there has ever been, um, had uh, got the rights to the audiobook and got the files, but Audible UK will not put the book up for some arcane laws they have about international rights, and they claim uh, that that because. Silvertail doesn't own the rights to the audible, the audio book for the entire world that they will not put it up in the, in their territories. And the same thing with Audible Australia. And I'm getting endless emails and things on social media and complaints from people saying, where's the audio book? And like, I started putting, I put something on Twitter the other day saying, listen, quit writing to me go start complaining to Audible UK mm. and Audible Australia and demand that they do something about it because mm. I recorded the book. Silvertail has the Audible rights and the audio files have tried to upload it, tried, 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 and are being frustrated at every turn. So mm. I just say that uh, in preface to reading this because uh this is the only place you're gonna hear it if, you, if that's exactly right john the the john atac uh show is the only place that you in the uk and australia will be able to hear me reading any sections of the book oh, i will do my best yes so do you want me to to start John, yes. or do you want to you you just want me to start reading this thing that you had noted here? Yeah, the the little. All right. Bit. 
I could no longer tolerate the mental and physical stress that had been mounting after years inside the highest echelon of Scientology's international hierarchy. The physical beatings, the malnourishment and lack of sleep, the constant humiliation. I had been taught since childhood that the WOG, anything outside of Scientology, world was dangerous, degraded, and dark. But now it seemed less so than the Scientology world I was living in. I had reached the point where any fate would be better than the continued torture of life near the top of the self-proclaimed most ethical and enlightened group on Earth. From a Scientology perspective, I was committing the ultimate act of betrayal that would damn me for eternity, deserting the only group that could save mankind from a hopeless future of ignorance, pain, and suffering. Stepping across the threshold meant that everyone I had known, including my family and all my friends and acquaintances, would be dead to me. To be accurate, once I took that step, I would be dead to them, at least to all those who were Scientologists, and that would be almost everyone I had known since the age of six. It, it's such an incredible thought, you know, to, that I, I have a friend who, she was two when her parents got involved and I met her when she was 37. And because she had not known anything else in her childhood, she'd left 16 years before. She'd gone and got a university degree, but she had no points of reference in the world. Mm -hmm which is exactly your case that so believing that that ron hubbard was let's face it the messiah you know he used the buddhist term maitreya or metaya um the, the savior of all mankind um this you know if we don't do what he says as he said the whole agonized future of every man woman and child on this earth depends on what we do here and now in Scientology. I've made this joke often before, which is, why is the word agonized in there? Surely with Scientology, the future won't be agonized. I think you may have been being truthful. At 17, you were awarded a full scholarship to the University of Adelaide. And yes. rather than doing that at 18, you went half the way around the world to Portugal and, and joined the Apollo. Um, yes, which is uh, it was a cattle ferry, <laughs> the glorious flagship of uh, Scientology. The, Your the pinnacle, the pinnacle of the Scientology, the Scientology world, mm. the the ultimate uh, reflection of everything that Hubbard had to offer the the planet and mankind. Yes, it was it was really something. And and you know Hubbard was the greatest expert ever on everything yes <laughs> um, including management and you know how to run a happy ship's company and all of this your passport was taken um you had gone there to to train as an executive to run the australian organization and you're then told um that pretty much you've been traded by the australian organization and um it was said to you, you perform whatever duty you are assigned. So that that was you. It, could you perhaps read us the next section, which begins with the word walking? Certainly. 
Uh, okay, walking into the men's dorm was an onslaught to the senses. The overpowering odor of sweaty bodies and dirty clothes filled the pitch dark airless room. There was no porthole, view, or even a light. There was no air conditioning. My room at home seemed like a prince's palace, a vision from a past life I wish I could teleport back to. Guided by a flashlight, the birthing in charge suggested I hold onto the back of his shirt and follow him closely. As I looked around, I faintly made out a room about 30 feet wide and 60 feet long with several rows of triple stacked bunks. With a ceiling height of six and a half feet at the most, the space crammed in about 50 men. My bed, sandwiched in the middle of a triple bunk, was at the very end of the room. Because the Apollo operated on both day and night shifts, there were always people sleeping, and thus, no lights. There were also no closets in the men's dorm, so people hung their dirty clothes on hooks next to their beds. Nor were there laundry facilities out of the buckets to wash your clothes in salt water and then give a final rinse in precious fresh water. I felt like I had arrived in the black hole of Calcutta. The showers were no better. 30 seconds was all we could get, as there were only three or four showers available on the ship and always a line of men standing waiting for their turn. Fresh water was extremely limited, and it was not hot so I couldn't bear much longer than 30 seconds anyway. I managed to be as efficient with my time as possible, following Hubbard's written directives on how to take the quickest shower. Turn on the water to get wet, turn it off to soap up, turn it back on to rinse off. I managed to get to bed that first evening, but I had to get out of the bunk to turn over since my hips were too wide to roll over without hitting the metal frame of the bunk above. As I lay there struggling to breathe that night, I thought, what the hell have I gotten myself into? I also wondered what my parents would think. But I knew I had to maintain a good roads, fair weather veneer in my letters home, as saying anything even slightly negative about the world of Hubbard was forbidden. And you asked yourself, what have I done to pull it in? <laughs> exactly. Because there's, there's this twisting of the ancient law of karma in Scientology that anything bad that happens to you is because you've done something bad. Um, Hubbard took karma vipaka, the traditional Sanskrit, and, and turned it into oh, the overt motivator sequence. He, he was capable of damaging the language at every stage this man. He just had... <laughs> At least poetic term, the overt motive. But, but John, let me let me just comment about that because I've been asked about it quite a lot recently with respect to the the ongoing Danny Masterson trial. Yeah, and I have made clear that, like everything else in Scientology, this is an absolute. This is th this idea of what have you done to pull it in isn't just a cliche and the overt motivator sequence isn't just a, a word salad of, of oddball terminology cobbled together and sort of it's a loosey goosey thing. 
No, this is a very, very um, hammered in concept that if I walk out the front door of my house now and get run over by a car, that the Scientology response to that is to sit me on an e-meter and ask me, when did I run someone over with a car? Mm -hmm. This overt motivator sequence, the overt being the act of doing, uh, committing a transgression against the morals that are dictated by Scientology, and the motivator being then the, the desire to have the same punishment meted out on me because of what I had done in the past is an absolute law in Scientology. It's not a, it's not a parable, it's a law. So <laughs> if you get raped, the Scientology response to that is, who did you rape before? And it is the ultimate in victim blaming. Like literally, you can't get more, more, um, more blatant about blaming the victim than this concept in Scientology of the over-motivated sequence, which gets shorthanded into something that every, every Scientologist says, knows, and understands. What did you do to pull it in? Yeah. And there's only one person in the known universe to whom this never applied, and that's Ron Hubbard. So and when now he... David Miscavige. It's true, actually. Now two people have, have achieved... But, well, actually, three, John... There is another one that I always say, the organization itself. Yeah. Nothing it's ever nice. happens bad to the organization because they've done bad things to people. It's always because the SPs are out there, the, the merchants of chaos, the government, the psychs, the, somebody is out there doing terrible things to Scientology. Scientology it never fesses up and says, well, according to uh, what did we do to pull it in, it's because we have, you know, held people against their will, we've taken their money, we've broken up their family, we've done this, we've done that. So that that actually, it's Hubbard, the organization, and now David Miscavige. And so, you know, Hubbard's constant ill health, you know, which in anybody else in Scientology would be considered what is called PTSness, which is a confusing expression. Uh, being a potential trouble source, somebody who might harm Scientology, that is. But if, right. if there's anything wrong with you, it's your fault. It's something you pulled in, it's something you did. And it makes it right. very hard to uh, assign responsibility properly in the world because it'd be, well, those six million Jews, they pulled it in. Right. Uh, exactly. And of course, the Kabbalah cult says something quite similar about them but we won't get into what uh, Madonna believes at this point. So it, when you were first saying, and we covered this in, in other talks, so I'm afraid that, that our audience are going to have to go and watch those. Um, but you were assigned to um, make sure that nobody spoke to Bruce Welch. And after we first talked about that, it's funny because other people came and, and told me. And apparently the reason that Bruce Welch was being held incommunicado without being communicated to and your job was to make sure that hmm. communicated to him um was because he said he was going to kill ron hubbard 
That's what oh, I, I, did. I didn't know that until I saw that you had said that recently. <laughs> I went, oh, that's interesting. I had, I had no idea. Yeah, and the, the lie about him not being communicated to, Karen de la Carrier told me about this because she was working with Hubbard at the time on the Class 12 program. That right. was the Class 11 program that Welsh was used for. Hubbard was actually push, having notes pushed under the door to, to tell him things. But um, this is where Hubbard claimed that he had found the, the cause of insanity and we no longer needed psychiatry. And all you have to do is send somebody to Coventry, <laughs> ignore them completely, and they'll get better. They, you know, normally science would have, well, we're expected to have a gold standard of 1,000 people who've been checked for a study, and that must then be replicated. Hubbard didn't need that. One person was enough. And what happened to Bruce Welsh after he got off the ship and was never heard from again, we don't really know. But right. um, I also found somebody who knew him before he was confined who said that he was a really pleasant man, you know, really sweethearted man. And it seems that he'd worked out that there was something fishy about Hubbard and Hubbard had worked out how to shut him up. But um, let me scroll down a little on my under machine. You then, again, we, we've talked about this at length in, in, in the book. There's a wonderful description of it, the, what is called the Rock Festival in Madeira, where you found yourself pretty much surrounded by a howling mob who wanted <laughs> to tear you to pieces and, and you managed right. to escape. You have to read the book to find out more details of that. Or go and watch the talk. Um, I, I sort of went through the book and, and pulled out certain phrases because they, they really struck me. And, and one of them was you, you saying that you had the most important job on earth, that anybody who was working directly under Hubbard's orders, you know, you were like the 12 disciples, you know, you, you were really important, you know, really important people. Um, I remember talking at Norabeth Crest. She, she talked at a conference I gave in Toronto in 2015, and she said that she tried to get a day off. And if she tried to get a day off from the sea organization, she'd be told, think of all the harm you're doing to millions of people by squandering your time, you know, that this is so precious. And so you're wound to a full intensity you are not allowed to sleep properly. You're malnourished because diet of beans and rice is, is really not enough for, for people. And you're constantly being badgered and pushed around. And you have this bizarre idea that your statistic must always go up. You must right. always be able to produce more. Now, it doesn't take much of a stretch of logic to say if you're milking cows and you've got seven of them, you are not going to every day get more milk out of those cows well i don't think so anyway i should think there'll be a certain leveling off so is yet another trap built into this which when you add it to the idea that you're responsible for everything that goes wrong around you means that you will be completely introverted <laughs> you know yes you won't be able to see the world outside and you'll be desperate to do something because yeah it, the famous issue where Hubbard said, uh, I want Scientologists to survive World War Three," and, and we're all panicked into this situation. I know that leading executives at that time in the, in the 70s were being told that there was only six months left. Um, oh, yeah. There, 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 there's been six months, there's been five years, there's been a very short amount of time, there has been, you know, 10 years, we may have X amount left it's like the you know 
the Jehovah's Witnesses and the yeah. Armageddon. It's going to be 1914. It's going to be 1921. It's gonna... <laughs> 1973, 1978. I anyway, think we're up to 2033 at the moment, so they've pushed it a bit along. <laughs> yeah, well, they've been practicing. That's 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 what. Get it that's right. what yeah, they'll they'll get it. This is God's test. He's testing us to see if we can get our act together, and then he'll come forth with hellfire and brimstone. But that that's but that's not so different than Scientology. I mean, the idea that the world is going to end up as a as a you know bald planet bereft of life, having been annihilated in a nuclear cataclysm, is not often said you know out loud these days, but is certainly what Scientologists believe. And and the higher up the the chain of command you get in Scientology, the more that idea is very prevalent yes. because it justifies and explains the urgency and the the commitment to to achieving what needs to be achieved in order to save the world from this horrible fate. And, you know, when you're in a circumstance where things are happening, just like you say, you don't sleep, you're not eating well, you're, you're being, you know, physically and mentally abused, you don't have uh, the, the comforts that normal people would consider to be a necessity of, of life, you have to find a reason why you tolerate all that stuff. Like you, even internally, you have to come, otherwise you go nuts. You just go insane. You've got to come up with my, um, my explanation as to why I'm putting up with the bullshit. Because if you don't have an explanation, then you're like really in bad shape. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? It's like, uh, and, and ultimately you come to the point where that explanation no, no longer works mm -hmm. and that all those explanations are no longer overcome the pain that you are being, that is being inflicted upon you, whether it's emotional or physical or a combination of both, which is what it usually is. And that's the breaking point. And that's the breaking point that happens ultimately with everybody who finds their way to escape this this prison of belief and that's what like that first quote that we read that's me trying to summarize that into a paragraph of i reached the point where nothing could be worse than this so what have i got to lose and you know there is a long history of of people being caught up in self-sacrificing um groups cults let's call them that um for example after the black death in the 1340s there was a group who called the flagellants who would have leather straps with nails in them and they walked all around europe beating themselves with these things now on the face of it this looks like rather strange behavior but <laughs> they believed that the end of the world was on its way they wanted to survive World War One, let alone World War Three, and that by doing this, they were 
they would be able to enter heaven. And so, yeah, people who believe absurdities will commit atrocities. And they'll commit atrocities yep. to themselves on behalf of other people. You didn't do this so that you could go to heaven. You did this to save humanity. This right. was a completely selfless act, you know, and perfectly normal in a, in a Christian society that, that people are meant to give to other people. And then it inverted that what, what was actually happening for any of us, me included, is that we were harming other people. Yes. As well as ourselves. Yes. Um, just a, a, I know I'm going through my notes running the sequence of the book, so it's not necessarily, um, it's just what, what my, caught my attention, my magpie attention. Um, you have um, snitching, <laughs> snitching rephrased as reporting on others is inherent to Scientology culture. And that's, a, right. you know, just as it was with the Gestapo, just as, I, I mean, um, so much, so much runs in parallel in Scientology. Nobody has done this and, and they, maybe they should with what Mao Zedong did in China. I am pretty sure that at some point Hubbard read Lifton's uh, book about thought reform in modern China and applied the principles. And one of those is that you are always informing on the people around you for their, quote, anti-Bolshevik activity. And anti-Bolshevik right. activity, that led to the Stalinist purges. He got it from Mao. Um, Mao actually had a regiment of men, and one quarter of them were executed for their anti-Bolshevik uh, activities. And that meant you could look at somebody and say, oh, I can see. You're an anti-Bolshevik. Stalin threatened to uh, kill Shostakovich after the Fourth Symphony because it was anti-Bolshevik. You know, how do you listen to a piece of music and determine that it's? But the same thing is running through Scientology. This: Are you with the cause? Are you doing anything at all? Are you criticizing Hubbard in any way? Do you have any doubts? You'll be reported. And yes, John, it, it is beyond whether you witness it. You can suspect it. <laughs> and report you're expected to report if you suspect like there is a thing called a things that shouldn't be report mm. that is designed for when you don't really know what is wrong but there's something that that shouldn't be the way that you have observed it or thought it was then you're expected to write that report and you know in scientology if you fail to report on something that you were aware of or observed or, or suspected, suspected, and then that person is caught for whatever reason, then the policy of Scientology is that you are to suffer the same penalties as the perpetrator of the crime. It's, it's it's taken very, very seriously. And it's something that people who are outside of that world find very, very difficult to understand. They like, you know, when the Inchwives went on the the Anderson Cooper show, the the my ex-wife, Tom's, Marty's, and Jeff Hawkins, mm -hmm. and each one of them said, Well, we you know, uh, we 
we lived with our husbands for 30 years, we, you know, we had, they never mentioned the fact that they were being assaulted by David Miscavige. Of course not. <laughs> Nobody in Scientology does that. You don't, you don't do it with your spouse. You don't do it with your children. Like the first thing that they're going to do is turn around and report you. <laughs> it, you, and this concept is so difficult for people to grasp who have never been involved in this level of, of thought control organization that you would fear disclosing something to your spouse because they would report you and then get you into trouble is like, seriously? No, that what? couldn't possibly happen. Oh yes, it does. And it how? Does. It does. And how? Does. I, I exit counseled. Let's use those terms. Um, Robert Vaughan and, and Stacey Young. Um, four years after they'd left Scientology, but um, you know Vaughan or Von. I meant to pronounce his name Von. This is difficult for me. He called me John, and I called him Von. Um, but it, lovely guy, I thought. Um, but he was seriously still wanting to believe in Scientology. He was the man who announced Hubbard's death. He'd been the, the top of public relations in the US for some time in the Guardian's office. And when I, I talked with them, this thing came out that for seven years before they left, at about the same point, they'd both gone, I really don't want to be involved in this, but I'll lose my spouse. So mm -hmm. they didn't tell each other for seven years. That is the climate of fear. And it, let's say, you know, Dante Alighieri talked about the circles of, of hell. Well, you progress through circles to become more and more fervent, to become more and more involved, and to be more and more enslaved psychologically. So you, it's, you know, critical thinking is not going to help you necessarily you know you're obviously a very smart man you've got a full scholarship to Adelaide University and yet you use your intelligence to buttress the ideas of Ron Hubbard um, right and and John you know um, one of the things that I really tried to do in my book was portray my thought processes. Yes, which you did and, very well. And, and this was this was not easy. You know, when I started writing this book, I originally did it, I, I like outlined a timeline and I was always worried that, you know, I wouldn't get everything exactly right. And that I, you know, I don't have any records of anything. I just have my memory. Meanwhile, Scientology knows every plane flight I ever took, every, you know, every stamp of my passport, every hotel I ever stayed in, everywhere every person was, how much money I spent, blah, 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 blah. And so I was sort of, you know, they'll nitpick little bits and pieces and say, well, this is, a, look how stupid this is. He says, blah, he was in Paris in 1982. And in any event, I sort of finally overcame that. And I had this, this, skeleton timeline and I started filling it in and I sort of worked time you know went all the way through filled in all the details that I could and that was sort of the first draft of my book and frankly it was written like a legal brief 
it was just the facts. Here we are. This is what happened. Then I went here and then that happened. And then I went here and then this person did this and then I did that. And then, then suddenly I found myself, blah, 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 blah. And I got a wonderful editor to assist me with this book. And she basically became not just my editor, but my therapist. Yes. Because what would happen is she would read a passage and then we would talk on the phone. This was during COVID and we would talk on the phone and she would say, tell me what you were thinking here. Mm. Now, tell me what you were feeling. What was your emotions? What, like, how did you, how was your, how was your family reacting? What is, what is Kathy saying? What, you know, and one of the things that is, is, is very difficult to recover uh, after a history in, you know, any length of time in Scientology is the idea or the, the ability to express emotions. Yes. Emotions are hammered, hammered, hammered out of you in Scientology, mm -hmm. starting with the TRs, but the, particularly for people who are on staff and then particularly for people who are in the C organization, the idea that case on post is a detrimental thing and that case on post consists of emotion about anything. Like literally, <laughs> like if you have emotion, you have case on post and emotion is a bad thing. And empathy is a bad thing. And sympathy is, oh my God, sympathy is like all the way at the bottom of the, of the barrel of, of humanity is, is those sympathetic people, the, the simpering wimps of the, of the world. Do-gooders. Yeah. This was, this was the hardest part about writing the book, was trying to recapture what, what were my suppressed emotions and now bring them to the surface and put them on the page. And I realized after a while that what she was saying to me about how important this was, and it was like, it was like every day, John, every day, look, we've got to, we've got to hear you. You've got to, you've got to impart this. This is what will make this understandable to people. And I finally sort of, not finally, but, I recognize she's right. If you can impart, here is what I, here's what I was going through. There is a hope that people will be able to understand it better. And I think that that was the value of the aftermath show mm -hmm. was that there were people who were recounting their personal experiences and how they felt about it, what it was like. And that made, uh, and many, many people commented subsequent to that show, for the first time, I understood that that could have been me, that this is not, the, the cults are not the, the uh, haven for the, the hopelessly insecure, incompetent, stupid people of the world, that they attract also intelligent, good, kind, empathetic people, and that 
it's it's not a reflection on the the um, goodness or badness of someone that they got themselves involved in a cult or a bad relationship or all sorts of other things. And my my real hope for, of about this book is that it speaks to a much broader audience than former Scientologists or even former cult members because my my sort of gold standard that I was seeking to emulate in in my own uh, less than than amazing way of doing it was was Tara Westover's absolutely wonderful book called Educated, mm-hmm. and that book had a had a profound impact on me when I read it, and I think it's had a profound impact on a on a large number of people around the world who have read it, and and seen life through the eyes of someone who experienced something that they thought that they could never experience, but oftentimes many people have experienced similar, maybe smaller, maybe different, maybe in relationships, maybe in their job, maybe in in dealing with the PTA, who knows what, but they've had experiences and they can see, gosh, you know, if, if Tara Westover or Mike Rinder or whoever, John Atek can come through this and emerge out the other side and and change their life for the better, then so can I. Yes. And and so I hope it's a it's a message of hope and not just a a story of horror. Yeah, it, it's not just somebody grizzling about how they were abused. It, it it's very much not that. It, it it's a it's about that progression that we go through. There's so much in that. I mean, the first thing is that um, from the outside, people think that that followers are suffering from what's called dependent personality disorder. And there's not been enough work on this, but there has been work on it. And the suggestion is that in fact, people who join authoritarian groups have a no higher ratio of of dependent personality disorder than you'll find anywhere else in society. The same, in fact, is true for terrorist groups, with the exception of those who strap on the suicide belts. There is a higher proportion there, but they usually get a three-day training before they blow themselves (laughs) up, and they're weak and vulnerable people. Um, The the next point is, I've talked a great deal over the last few years about weaponized empaths, and it was Hannah Whitfield you know, who I met 40 years ago, nearly for the first time, 35 years ago, uh, it was very helpful to me. And it, the thing that's noticeable about Hannah and that everybody says is she's, she's so sweet. I know. She's such a sweet person. And yet she was the first brutal ethics officer. You know, she talks about keeping the radio operator awake for five days because Hubbard had ordered to do it, which would in fact kill you if you didn't sleep at all. There would have been micro-sleeping. And the way that she dealt with this as an empath, having been ordered that he'd got to stay up until a new radio arrived, was she stayed up with him. Right. So right. that was the first clue to me that, that, and it's a weakness, sociopaths, people who are sadistic, 
whatever term we want, tyrants, you know, bullies, authoritarians, they don't care. Yes. They can then, if they sell you a bill of goods that says you're doing good in the world, they can get you to to do these things. It is possible, looking at his own writings, to say that Himmler, who was the founder of the SS, the head of the Gestapo, the minister for the interior, and probably one of the craziest people ever lived, was doing what he did out of empathy. He does not appear to have been in the least bit sadistic. Um, Well, it's funny you mentioned Hannah, John, because, you know, I first met Hannah in 1974. Mm. And at the time, Hannah was the scariest person to me. She was the head of the of what was called AVU, the Authorization Verification Unit. You literally tiptoed by where she was working behind a, 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 a like a sort of a wooden barrier thing in the tween decks for fear of disturbing her thought processes while she was reviewing someone's evaluation or whatever she was doing behind that little little, that that little flimsy piece of wood Mm -hmm. and she was she was like terrifying to me Mm -hmm. and it's not actually that hannah had ever done something to me personally it was her reputation she was like Everybody knew this was like the queen and she was a a Hubbard, you know, favorite and she'd been around and she was a commander and she was this and she was that. When I came to know Hannah after leaving and spent time with her and Jerry and I was like, you know, if you can turn... Hannah Whitfield into an authoritarian monster, you can turn anybody. (laughs) You can twist anybody because Hannah Whitfield is the kindest, sweetest, gentlest, soft-spokenest person that you could ever come across. And it, it, it's, I actually hadn't really considered that until you just mentioned that. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, Hannah was one of those people I was terrified of when I was in the Sea Org. She was like, oh, my God. <laughs> they, and, they, they called, she was one of the vixens, wasn't she? One of the, the, the women who had been. And Hubbard, of course, in 1951, is saying, you know, women shouldn't be allowed to, to, to do work. That they should be, um, you know, in the kitchen. Um in science of survival but then you see this thing and i saw this a a friend of mine briefly headed um, the guardian's office legal department and his wife was in the commodore's messenger organization and so when he was sent to be punished at gilman hot springs his wife was in charge of punishing him and that inversion that that using the female of the species to punish the male was something that, that Hubbard, you know, ran along for a fair while. I mean, and Mary Sue Hubbard was, you know, again, you've got this bizarre thing. I, I talked with Ira Chaleff over the years. It was a dear friend. We go back to 1977. And and he he said that, you know, he, he hated, he really disliked Hubbard. 
He couldn't be around Hubbard. Hubbard was a horrible person. He was always shouting and bullying the, the Maitreya who was going to save us all. But he really liked Mary Sue and there was nothing I could do to dislodge this. And he sort of going, well, overboarding was started by Mary Sue, not by Ron, when she keel-hauled Otto Rose. You know, put him on a rope and dragged him under the keel of the, the ship, under the hull of the ship, which could very easily have killed him. So, again, she seems, you know, many people talk about her empathy, but she was a weaponized empath. She was willing to do whatever was necessary on behalf of her husband and not even on behalf of Scientology, because I'm not really sure that she believed in it, frankly, from what I've heard. She questioned him often and called him a charlatan. But she went to prison so he wouldn't have to. And then he, of course, right. had nothing more to do with her because, you know, why would he, you know? Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, I know uh, I always throw you off track, John, with my rambling you you try. Know, sides, but You try. You know, but, <laughs> as I have the script in front of me, if we jump down a couple of, of um, through the next two to the, to the next one on, I, I did pull out this, this profound insight, which really needs to be underlined. Hubbard was first and foremost a storyteller. And yes. so easy to miss that. What we as human beings want our narratives, stories. We love it, you know, whether it's sitting around the campfire or, or watching, you know, Breaking Bad on the television. We love a story. Hubbard was yes. not a particularly good storyteller, though Stephen King says that Fear is the best short story ever written. Um, but his stories are clumsy, but he somehow managed to engage us in a huge story, which is Scientology. And yes. You know, it's a rather simplistic story because all you've got is what atom-powered cars racing on other planets with people in dull bodies. He doesn't really have that. That's one I got from you. Um, that that he would sit and tell you this this stuff, and you'd be going, "Oh, wow, incredible!" And then you go, actually, when you look through all of his books, he doesn't seem to have many stories. But by engaging us with the stories, we're all in what he called the mystery sandwich, where we're waiting right. to find out what the outcome is. So right. just want to you know, put a red line under that for everybody that uh, it's a very good observation on your part. Well, I, I also note, John, just before I read this, somewhere in the book, I said, you know, and, and Hubbard claimed, you know, we, we talked about the introspection rundown. Oh, this phenomenal research that he had done everything, you know, curing psychosis or Dianetics, you know, hundreds of patients in Savannah, Georgia and blah, 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 blah. 70 something. And when I, when I interviewed Don Rogers, who was with him when he wrote the book, he said, the day we got the contract for the book from Art Sepos, he said, well, deep trans hypnosis is not very popular. We'll have to find something else. There was no research on the Dianetics. I, it was just Yosemite's method revisited. But but then Hubbard came up with a brand new thing that every Scientologist accepts 100%, which is his research is past life research. You know, History of Man, the most insane book that has probably ever been published. I don't mean just in Scientology. I just mean 
Yeah, and you, know, where... you made me bloody read it as well. You know, I hadn't read a Scientology book for 40 years. And you said, let's do a show about history of man. And I read it. And when we started, you said, you didn't read it, did you? <laughs> yeah, it was grueling. <laughs> 90 pages of cack, you know. <laughs> but that was the start of this idea that Hubbard could pluck this infinite wisdom from his infinite past. Mm -hmm. You, if you have lived for trillions of years and have experienced everything that has ever happened in, in all those trillions of years, you know, if you have perfect recall, which is what Hubbard sort of claimed his shtick was, that you know about everything. So you know how to run a planet with a computer chug, you know, uh, you just know. You know how to resolve um, uh, a, a being in poor shape. You have him go out and circle a star. You know, go around in circles around a star, and there's the running program. And, and if you are a dedicated Scientologist and you read Hubbard's, quote, research about the running program, the research about the running program is this is what we used to do, you know, 74 billion years ago after we you know after we lost our body we would go out and circle a star and so this becomes the process now and this is research this is fabulous storytelling fabulism and tabulous storytelling incredible storytelling not and, meaning and that it's really very good just that it's not actually believable but that was, you know, that, and, and a lot of people ask me, so what's your impression of Hubbard? I, look, there's no doubt he was larger than life. He was like a big personality. He was not a shy retiring type. He was, you know, he came into a room and everybody knew he was there. And then he would start explaining things everything and anything okay i'll read this <laughs> yeah, no, before we get to that one of the things that got me while i was still involved in scientology i have a let's say better than average memory and it surprised me that people could come up with all of these fantastic past life memories but when i talked to them about their own lives or about you know their education and the things they've been taught they very often had poor memories and i couldn't fit that together then i you know, with a certain amount of research, and I actually did do research, you know, <laughs> real research. I read hundreds of thousands of page of material, interviewed or looked at um, what had been written by 150 people. I think Janet Reitman talked to five people for her book. Um, and one of the things that came through is that Hubbard didn't actually remember his own this lifetime past. He thought he'd been a nuclear physicist. He thought he'd seen combat. He thought he'd studied with gurus in the East. He had not. So the, the fabulism was just complete. There's a, I think it was Frank McGruber in the pulp jungle talking about an encounter with, with Hubbard, which I used and which uh, Russell Miller um, used as well, where he sat for an evening with, with Hubbard, listening to him telling his stories. And he said, oh, you're 84 years old, Ron. And Hubbard said, what, what do you mean? He said, I've been making a note. You were two years in the 
the jungles and then three years doing this and then five years doing this I've added it all up and Hubbard said but I'm only 22 you know or something like that so it was it, and if we go to the earliest point I believe and correct me if I'm wrong I think I'm the only person who's got copies of Hubbard's teenage diaries no idea are you yeah. I have you I go. have 200 diaries from his two holidays in China uh but I also have they were put I thought I thought until 2015 I thought that Jerry Armstrong was among the the documents that Omar Garrison had given him to protect himself and that that's how they got into the Armstrong case but they were actually put in by Scientology and when the the seal was lifted on the case and Mike Flynn could make copies of them I was the person who got the copies so I've I'm very familiar with these diaries. There's a lot of material in them. What fascinated me was he typed up one of them. So you've got the handwritten original, then you've got the retype, and everything has got better in the retype. Oh. In his own diary. So yeah. Um, so yes, the next one is the uh, there was not a subject. That's the next one I'd like for everybody. Right. <clears throat> okay. Here we go. There was not a subject that he did not have an opinion about, and he always spoke as if he were not just the leading expert on every subject on earth, but the only person who understood its full meaning. I was captivated and believed every one of his stories to be absolute fact. When I was with Hubbard, I was more committed and dedicated as a Scientologist than at any other point in my life. Yeah, I've read Bram McKee's testimony at the Clearwater hearings, and he'd been involved uh, for a very long time in Scientology. And he said, uh, well, I'm a trained physicist, so when I read what uh, Hubbard had to say about physics, I knew that was complete nonsense. But what he said about Buddhism was fascinating, and I had to laugh. I was a trained Buddhist, and I knew that what he was saying about Buddhism was nonsense. <laughs> oh, dear. Yes, that's exactly... The, I mean... You know, it was funny you said that, that that Hubbard didn't remember his his life in the Navy or had seen combat or whatever. Do you really think that that is the case, that his memory was bad or that he was just a bullshitter and would invent stuff and, and you know, because that's my view much more so than he had a bad memory. It's my view that he would invent things to make himself seem relevant or important or uh, having some sort of status that he didn't or wouldn't otherwise have. And then that he ultimately came to believe his own bullshit. And I say that, John, because in the end, the guy was chasing BTs. Body now, thetans, little demon body thetans. If that, if, if the, on the last days of his life and on his deathbed, if he truly had thought that, you know, OT3 and the Xenu story and blah, 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 blah was, was just complete hogwash, why would he still be chasing around trying to? handled bts i think he bought his own 
crap to the point where it drove him nuts. Like he was unable to differentiate now between reality and the, the world that he had created about himself and the lies that he had told about himself. And I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just kind of interested in your perspective about that. Hmm. It, it is a matter that has engaged me. Um, for 10 years after I left, people would ask me, and I'd published uh, Blue Sky seven years into that. So people would um, ask me, was he evil? And that was, the, it took 10 years before I felt that I'd gathered enough material to, to make a pronouncement. So the thing is to say, if he was insane, then he can't be held to be responsible, and therefore he wasn't evil. If he did this deliberately, then he was evil. This is compounded by so many things. The first is that pathological liars tend to come to believe their lies. And they will become very offended if you challenge them. But I noticed that there was another trait with Hubbard. Because I read so much material, talked with so many people, it seemed to me that I never heard the same story twice. I think I collected 22 autobiographical accounts, uh, some of them internal, like the Tompkins biography notes, um, some of them public, like the introduction to Mission Into Time. The same story was, the details changed. So, for example, he became a blood brother of the Blackfoot Pikuni people at the age of two, at the age of four, or at the age of six. Now, we know, and this comes from the Blackfoot Bakuni themselves, that they never had any blood brothers. And of course, Tree Many Feathers, who is an eighth blood and a Scientologist, decided in a personal ceremony to retroactively make him a blood brother. And that you know, has been held on to by such scholars as, as Gordon Melton, as if it were some right. kind of truth. But the point is that whenever he told a story, he changed it. Now, one of the foundations of Scientology is the idea that the universe exists because we don't perceive it properly. We do not see it as it is. We have mm -hmm. to alter is it. So we don't see it as it is, we have to change it. And the only way that something will persist is if it has a lie entered into it. Well, I think Hubbard could not tell the same story again, was not, was no longer aware of what had really happened. You know, he tells that story about being a kid and beating up four members of the, the O'Connell family or something. When Russell right. Miller went and got the material on, they existed. But the he was eight years old at the time that he beat them all up, and the oldest of them was 18. So he took on four of them and beat them all up. You have this, he couldn't help but enlarge himself, which I think was to possibly to do with um, a part of his upbringing, because he was largely the male figure in his life was Lafayette Waterbury, his maternal grandfather. He lived there. His own father was here, there and everywhere doing various things. Right. Um, so and his grandfather, as and I have a grandchild, too. Tended to idolize him. And I think that that he felt guilty about not living up to these things. He was, we know, overweight. He was spotty. Um, he was not particularly well liked. Um, 
he was scared of horses, according to one of his school fellows, Andrew Saunders. So we have somebody who, you know, he talked about this having a, a, a social tone and a chronic tone that is what you present to the world, and then there's who right. you really are. And I think there was a tremendous division. Um, Jerry Armstrong, when I first met him in 1984, pointed out that Hubbard was trying to cure himself. But if you look at the list of things in Dianetics that are wrong, uh, it has uh, asthma, which he had, it has short-sightedness, but not long-sightedness. He was short-sighted to the end of his days. It has bursitis, a word I'd never seen before, uh, an inflammation that stops lubrication between the muscle and, and the bone in his right shoulder. And that was painful. And he had it all of, all of his life. So I think he sort of wanted to project something out. Um, he talks in the data series about being able to, you know, you just have to assume the beingness of the station master. Yes. And people, I think he assumed the beingness and he wasn't very good at it. You know, he was a crap photographer. He was a crap musician. He was a crap poet. You know, he's written English. His prose is appalling. But he assumed the beingness, and we saw that. And I think that he always vacillated, talking to Barbara Cloden, who was his mistress in 1950 uh, in Los Angeles. And she later qualified as a psychologist. And she said he'd have these days where he, he thought he was the worst person in the world and that he could achieve nothing. So that, you know, we can't even label him a psychopath because he does appear to have occasionally shown conscience. Um, right. He didn't do much to help us with it. So I think that we're dealing with a man who is very seriously disturbed. And to try and find a simple explanation of how he behaved. Um, actually, later today, I'm talking with Yuval Laor about Hubbard and temporal lobe epilepsy, because we're both pretty convinced that he had a, a blow to the head at some point, had a lesion in the temporal lobe, because he had all 18 of the aspects of the Bayer-Fedio checklist for temporal lobe epilepsy. That, if you add to it, bipolar disorder. He was very evidently a man who, you know, John McMaster in the 60s talked about him sitting in the corner of his room weeping. Um, Jim Dinkelsey's account from Queens in 72, 73. This is not the man, the hero of the universe that, you right. know, and the the thing you alluded to at the end of his life where he asked Sarge Fouth to build a, an e-meter that would kill him because the body Thetans were taking over. You know, this is a man who we cannot gauge him. He, he himself said, and I learned this from him as a Scientologist, that you cannot rationalize the activities of a psychotic person. It's no good trying to say, why did this person yes, do this? Yes, yes, yes. So there's something defective. So... I think his memory was very cloudy. Um, I, I think his, he, he was no longer sure of what the truth was and had to hold on to, you know, like a child, very much like an, you know, an immature, say a 10 or 11 year old, who you know, said, you know, oh, oh, I climbed Mount Everest last week. You know, right. Once they've said it, they believe it. This is also something you see in borderlines, that that they have to be right. And, and if being right means telling you one minute 
I've never eaten a sweet in my life. And the next minute that I eat a bag of sweets every day, they will then deny they said the earlier thing. And I hear you on and on. It I goes. hear you. I, I, yeah, I mean, we could, we could talk about this for a very long time and it's, it's not honestly, um, at this point that valuable. The, the, the more value is to be able to see the reality of what happened as a result than seeking to analyze how did that, how, why was he doing things that way? Or, you know, in any event, I, you know, I, again, I digressed and asked for your opinion about that subject. So I think, I think my it, bad. I think it is ex extremely valuable to understand what he gave us was the idea that of logical consistency. If this, therefore that. If that, therefore that. And right. so if you had a misunderstood word, then all you have to do is go back, clear that word, and everything you learned after that will come back to you. Well, how could that be so? <laughs> uh, and if you had a misunderstood word, well, it's because you'll then commit overs and you'll do bad things. He wanted a really simple explanation for everything. And he's perhaps left us with a bit of a tendency, I know I still have it, to think that you can have such explanations. And yes. in his case, he is a fog of complexity, but that's not going to stop us trying to understand, you know. A fog so, of complexity, I like fog that. Of complexity. I, I just wanted to bring this up, and this is painful, and I'm sorry. Your first child died from sudden infant death syndrome. And yes. it, it made me, what we said earlier about it, what you said at the beginning about emotion, this suppression, repression of emotion that you're not meant to feel, the amount of people that, that I've spoken with who years later said, I did not grieve when my father died. I did not grieve. And it hits them again, like a tsunami. Years later, they left Scientology. And what you've been taught and I think this may be vital to the understanding of Scientology. You've been taught to be an actor. You've been taught to pretend emotions to the extent that, like Peter Sellers, who um, Stanley Kubrick called the greatest actor in the world, Sellers, in an interview, said, I have no idea who I am. I just fulfill the role. And I think we as Scientologists, you know, the, the attempt to always be enthusiastic or cheerful at least, Again, when I first met Jerry Armstrong, he made the very wise point that the tone level of members of the Sea Organization was fear. Yes. But what you had to project to the world, you know, as somebody outside of the Sea Org in nine years, I had no idea of the abhorrent things that were being done to Sea Org members. And I would spend time with them, hours and yes, hours. Yes, yes, yes. Would never come up. Then after I leave, this guy says to me, Steve Kay, lovely guy, he said to me, he'd been an L. Ron Hubbard communicator. And he said to me, you know, if your socks smell, you can turn them inside out. He went, no, I just put a clean pair on. <laughs> it's like every day, actually, Steve. And realizing that that was part of, you know, the elite core who were going to run the world, that they didn't have time to wash properly. You know? Right. Just appalling. So, yeah, uh, yeah. Maybe we move on from there. I, I, I don't want to, you know, poke around in in the grief that you must inevitably feel. Um, 
Oh, no, no, it's all right. It's all right. I, you know, there was another thing about writing this book, John, that, that it was exceedingly cathartic mm. in finally getting to the end. And I say in the book, you know, I used to have nightmares about twice a week, terrible nightmares that would wake me up of I'm back. I'm back at gold. I can't get away. It was like, it's classic PTSD phenomenon. Just like, and honestly, I don't think that there is another person that I have spoken to who used to be, uh, who used to work at the gold base, who hadn't had similar nightmares. Like just across the boards. And I say, I say in the book, I got to the end of the book when I finally got it all out and finally sort of, you know, expressed all the, the feelings and emotions that I had, that I stopped having nightmares. And I have not had any subsequent to that. So That's wonderful. talking about this, talking about this stuff now is like, I, I don't have a problem talking about it. Do I feel, um, do I have emotion about it? Certainly, but it's, it, it's like appropriate. It's yes. not, it's not like I'm trying to not have emotion or have emotion or trying to present something that isn't the way that I feel or anything. It just, it is what it is. And, you know, I don't mind talking about my experiences. I am very much of the view that I cannot live in regret for what has happened or what I have done in my life. All I can do is look to the future and think and act about uh, in a fashion that will make things better. <laughs> Knowing what I know now, what can I do to make things better for myself and other people, those around me and strangers. So I, I'm, you know, I don't have any problem about any of these topics or subjects whatsoever. I, I couldn't agree with you, you more that, that to feel remorse and then uh, not in the Catholic sense, make an act of contrition to do something about it. When, when I left Scientology, I hadn't done anything horrible to anybody because I was a public Scientologist. I'd had a right. fine time. I'm the only Scientologist I've ever met, and I've met more than a thousand, who can say I was never abused or humiliated. It's, I, I am, as far as I know, unique in that sense. But the guilt that I felt that I had contributed my energies to this group, which had been doing so much harm, meant that I had to stand up and go public even though I very quickly found out what happens when you do that. <laughs> but I felt ashamed of that. And then after a few months, so it probably took about six months for me to go, well, I've, you know, I've talked to a few hundred people now and um, I've launched Reconnection magazine and all of this stuff. And uh, I'd like to go back to painting pictures. Thank you very much. Writing novels, the kind of stuff I do in real life. And, I kept going because I also had this feeling that it was necessary to expose evil in the world. So I, I kind of went, well, what are the worst cults in the world? And they're the intelligence agencies. Come on, let's be honest about it. 
you know, what the KGB and CIA and MI6 and all these people, boss in South Africa, the things they've done, you know, going around killing people and blowing things up, horrible. You know, the, the, the CIA were using an SS regiment uh, from Belarus to, part, you know, to drop into. So I read all this and then I went, but loads of people know about this. Nobody knows about Scientology in yeah. the sense that academics can't get anywhere near it because it's so dense that you fall asleep reading it. <laughs> you know, it's only if you were an enthusiastic true believer that you can cover enough material to understand the subject. And yes, I'd already done that. So, and I have a historical bent, I'm reasonably articulate. That allowed me to, to go forward. But what I wanted from Scientology, and I think this is relevant to what you just said, was equanimity. You know, I'd had a bad breakup, uh, a, a girl who I'd been living with for 15 months who I did not love, had gone and slept with one of my friends, you know, how could you do this to me? And at my <laughs> separation anxiety or whatever it was, that's what propelled me in Scientology. I was a Buddhist, a meditating Buddhist, but that didn't, you know, I, Scientology promised me that I could be serene in the face of calamity. It took me many years, get into my 50s, really, to go that you are just trying to wall yourself off from the inevitable. Terrible things will happen. People will die. You will lose things. You will, you know, horrible things will happen. What really matters is the relationships we have with other people and how genuine they are. And in Scientology, none of those relationships are genuine because the minute right. somebody's declared a suppressive person, you don't like them anymore. <laughs> so <laughs> well, even worse than don't like them, you hate them. Yeah, and you kind of like to destroy them just as you wanted to destroy me at that, that day back in the 90s. Exactly. Okay, I've got us up to um, a passage beginning. I had arrived outside Miscavige's officer's lounge just to give us some idea of the um, status. Okay. David Miscavige. I had arrived outside Miscavige's office's lounge, a large room with a piano, big screen TV, game tables, and the like, ostensibly for Seog offices, but reserved for his use exclusively. I was waiting in the dark on the adjoining patio before being summoned inside. Instead, Miscavige burst out of the door and rushed at me like a bull charging a red flag. He pushed me into some bushes and I toppled over backward. He lunged at me again, hitting me in the face and kicking me while screaming, you cock-sucking motherfucker, you fuck me again, you piece of shit. For the life of me, I do not recall what my infraction could have been, and I'm not even sure I knew at the time. There would be dozens of incidents of Miscavige physically assaulting me to follow, and many, many more with him hitting kicking or throwing objects at other senior executives in Scientology. The acceptance of this abuse was perhaps the ultimate manifestation of the doctrine of you pulled it in. It's not what someone did to you, it's what you did to cause it that all good Scientologists look for. Yeah. And this is the leader of a religion. Yes, sir, Bob. Mm. I have one personal point here, and, and you may or may not know the answer. Tantalizingly to me, 
you mentioned Laura Terrapin. Now, I first heard about Laura Terrapin from a man who has become one of my dear friends, uh, who had been working with the Cult Awareness Network for years, not because of any involvement he or anyone he knew had had with Cult, <clears throat> because he is a genuinely empathetic man. His reputation was destroyed because people believed that he was a party to what she was doing. I just wondered um, how much you were involved with Laura Terrapin and what you knew about her. I, I, it's funny, I wasn't involved with her at all. I just heard her name mentioned, but I'm, I'm sure that wasn't her real name. That was a code no, name. What and I understand is it was actually a stolen identity. But uh, maybe. maybe. I, I want to bring it up because there may be somebody watching this who knows something more about her and um, if well, you contact me, that if would there, be great. If there is somebody watching this who may know more about it, they should also watch the extensive interview that I did with um, James, oh God, I can't <laughs> remember his name, from Watchmen Fellowship. Yes, uh, like three days ago. I don't know when that's going to go up. I'll put it on my blog and I'll, I'll spread it. We talked extensively about the Watchmen Fellowship and Can and, and mentioned Laura Terrapin. Um, I don't know who she was. I don't know any details. We talked at some length about the compartmentalization of information within Scientology, even within the Office of Special Affairs. It, like laterally and vertically, you know, nobody ever knows what really happens. There is, you know, lawyers hired to hire PIs to hire PIs to hire plants and the the people who are running those PIs, the case officers in Scientology in the Office of Special Affairs don't know what the case officer next to them is doing. And they report with, we heard that blah, blah happened. And, you know, there's never any details. So if there is some, like, John, if you want to put me in touch with whoever this person is, and I can try and tell them anything I know, I'm more than happy to. Thank and you. It was a fascinating conversation that I had because I didn't even recall the Watchman Fellowship. Like when when he started recounting to me that you know they were sued by Scientology and they were this and that then this happened and then they had a plant here and their office was broken into and blah blah blah. I'm like, holy, really? This was I, like this was when I was around. <laughs> I, I so. Mean I have the sense with, you know, that the, you know, the sleep deprivation alone is enough to, to mean that, that we don't perceive the world and that, that you were just being driven all the time. When we first talked, I, I was quite surprised because you weren't really aware of the 16 years of harassment I suffered because you weren't directly involved in that. It's just that's kind of that that goes on. And it, it was just that sense that. That, that, you know, you're a dynamo, that there was all of this stuff happening and it, it just went from one day to the next. So, you know, all of these awful and terrible things that were being done, as you say, rather like, and it happened in the Stasi and it happened in the KGB. The KGB were actually had um, not only their five British agents who we hear about, the famous five, there were 20 in the CIA, Ames being the most famous of them. They knew everything that was going on in the foreign intelligence agencies. 
but they were paralyzed because they had too much information and everybody was paranoid about everybody else because of this snitching, because of this, if I find something out and report it, then, you know, so you have a completely inefficient machine that that is not in any way coordinated, which is very much how Scientology functions. If I could perhaps yes. ask you to, to, to read me out um, one more passage, which is, uh, he ordered his then right-hand man. Yes. And then I will let you go. Thank you so much. He ordered his then right-hand man, Greg Wilhair, to take Heber, Mark, Yom, and me and throw us in the lake at the bottom of the St. Hill property. It was a chilly, overcast November afternoon. Wilhair allowed us to take off our shoes and strip down to pants and shirts before we waded into the freezing cold, almost black water. The bottom was stagnant, slimy mud. Our assignment was to remain in the lake, clearing away weeds and debris for a few days until Miscavige decided he wanted to return to California to prepare for the next event scheduled for New Year's Eve. As usual, none of us uttered a word of protest or disagreement. That would have made our circumstances even worse. Mm. Oh, incredible. It's just incredible. And, you know, there are a, a lot of books by ex-members and there are a lot of very good books by ex-members. Um, but I would definitely put yours at the top of the list because you were right at the heart of this group, your involvement with Hubbard, your involvement with Miscavige, and because through the book you are wrestling with that commitment. You're a true believer. This was going to save yes. the world. So you sacrificed so much yourself to do that. And now you've you've taken them on very publicly indeed. And I feel made a tremendous difference to the way that Scientology is perceived. Um, they really can't get away with it anymore. And hopefully David Miscavige will soon be on the witness stand or hiding in the south of Venezuela. And, um, and the whole horrible thing will collapse. And most importantly, most importantly for me, we will be able to do something to help the people who, who then leak out of, of the group and, and make into them as, as you have become thriving survivors. So thank you so much, Mike. Well, thank you, John. It's always a pleasure to, to chat with you. It, it, like the time literally flies by. I know we end up rambling about various things, but it's, you know, that's what we do. And I will, you know, I'm, I'm, been super occupied with doing, you know, media for the book and now for the Masterson case and whatever else is going on. But we will come back because I thoroughly enjoy these these conversations and Me too. we just have to make it happen. And and I will I will gladly do it anytime I can. Great. Well let's reconvene in a couple of months time when if things have settled down at all for you and uh it's a, a great pleasure as always. All right, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, John here. Thanks for watching. We'd appreciate it very much if you would click like as well as subscribe and click the bell for notifications. 
Every dollar helps and we welcome new patrons on Patreon. We can make a one-off payment with any currency through PayPal. Thanks so much. I cannot confirm nor deny it.